Well, hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Looking forward to jumping into Ephesians today. So we're going to be in Ephesians 2 and a little bit into chapter 3. Uh, Ephesians is, uh, I'll just let you know personally, um, is just such a treasure um, to me and my faith has been, it's probably my favorite book uh, of the New Testament. Um, really, there's just so much depth and great theological truth and great understanding of who God is, who we are. Um, and it's just a, an awesome book. So I'm excited to get to talk about it today. Um, just a little background. Uh, Ephesus, you may remember, um, we see in Acts, that is the church that Paul is going to found, but that is ultimately going to be uh, pastored by Timothy. So when Paul is writing his letters to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, he is writing to him as he pastors this church in Ephesus. Uh, this is one of Paul's later letters, and it's one of the letters that he wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. So uh, the traditional date given for it is about 62 AD, and that's around the time he's also writing um, the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, and then also right around the time he wrote the book of Colossians. Um, those are kind of known as the prison epistles because they were written by Paul while he was in prison. Um, this is also going to be unique because we know this is going to be a largely Gentile audience that he's writing to. So you can tell a lot in how he writes and what he's going to say. And we're going to go through a lot of that. Um, but we also know that the city of Ephesus had a uh, large Gentile population. And so those two things give us, uh, it's a, a little bit different because we know that um, in a lot of his other letters that it's either a mixed or sometimes he's even addressing a largely Jewish audience. So that's uh, unique in that way. And a lot of those themes are going to come up. Um, and like I said, just the theology of Ephesians is just so rich. A lot of what we, a lot of our kind of texts that we hold to dearly that are defining in our faith and help us understand many different uh, sections of our theology, maybe different doctrines, probably a better way to put it. Uh, a lot of the doctrines we understand, some of the most clear things come from the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to walk through some of that, but looking forward to talking about that. And we're going to be talking a lot about who we are, who God is, and then based on who God is, who we are now and what that requires of us. So we, and we're going to be reading a lot of this. So get your scripture listening ears on, if that's a separate set of ears that you carry around, we're going to be reading, I'm going to be reading quite a, a bit of these uh, verses out loud, and then we'll talk a little bit about them. But honestly, it's just, again, I've kind of have a personal uh, a personal favor toward Ephesians. So I'm like, hey, let's just read this sucker. You don't need to hear me talk about it. You need to hear it. So starting in chapter two, we're going to start with verse one and go through verse three. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we see here a pretty bleak picture that Paul is going to paint for us about who we are before we know Jesus, before we are uh, we encounter who Jesus is, this is 
what our identity is. This is who we were. And there's a lot of strong words here, dead in our trespasses. Um, that basically means that uh, for any of us, whether we were saved at four years old or into adulthood or whenever, it doesn't really matter. We all used to be dead in our trespasses and sin. And I think that one really poignant way he says that in verse is in verse three, he says, by nature, children of wrath. So you think, oh, I'm thinking of like a three-year-old being dead in their trespasses and sins or a seven-year-old or whatever it may be. It's not necessarily what we see outwardly, though that's a part of it, but it's our nature. Our nature was that we were dead in trespasses and sins. I mean, it also says that we followed the world and its ruler, that being Satan, um, he's also referred to here as Prince of the Power of the Air, Spirit Works in the Sons of Disobedience. Um, that was our person that we followed. That was the, the uh, theology, if you will, that we had was that there is no God. We do not seek God. We follow our natural passions and we follow the one who leads us into those passions, being Satan. And ultimately, we lived for ourselves. We did not have a desire for others to be placed for us. We did not have the idea that God was better than us. We lived for ourselves. So it's a pretty bleak picture we get here at the very beginning of chapter two, realizing what our life is before Christ. But then of course we move into verse four and we get to see this wonderful description of how God meets us in that in verse four. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see what our part was in verses one through three. It was being dead in our trespasses. That's really our part in this equation. Then we see God's part here. God's part is mercy, great love with which he loved us. Grace are the things that we see on God's part, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And what's the result once God enters into that, that we are saved and that we are seated with Christ, that we are made into a new family that has Christ as our co-heir, that we are raised up with Christ, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are shown kindness in Christ Jesus and if, this, if there's anything we can take from this first section of chapter two, it's that our salvation has nothing to do with our worthiness, but only God's love and mercy. I, I think it's, it's easier for us to believe that in theory. Our, our natural bent, though, I think, is to try to earn our own righteousness, to earn our own favor. And sometimes I think we play that out practically in our, in our faith walk that we almost feel like we have something to to prove that if we you know get off the get off the path for a bit that that means oh okay like i'm not good enough now so that means i must not be saved um there is a time for us to reflect and 
think, well, okay, what is the basis of my salvation? And is that playing out? Have I experienced a true a true conversion into the family of God? Have I truly believed in Jesus? But at the same time, we have to remember that if it wasn't because of us in the beginning that we were saved, that at the end, it's the same and everywhere in the middle. Our salvation is rooted in who God is, what Christ has done. And so when we live a life that is rooted in grace, then it changes the way that we act in it there may be some similarities between living a life that's rooted in worthiness or good works, but it's the motivation. It's the motivation that we have. If we are motivated by the desire to glorify God because of how great he is for other people to know him, or are we trying to justify ourselves? If we try to justify ourselves, we see there in verses one through three, uh, that's a no go. That's a non-starter. We're, we're bringing nothing to the table, but what we see, what's God's part, mercy, love, grace, the result that we're saved. This verse eight, um, you've probably heard, um, if you've been at churches that emphasize grace, you've, I'm sure, heard verse eight here, that for grace, you by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Again, that's one of those key doctrinal, clearest scriptures that we have um, that point us toward the, how is our salvation one? And it's important that, too that we get it right, that it's by grace through faith. So you think about like a whistle, you blow into the whistle, right? And then the whatever the mechanism of how the whistle is formed, it makes a, a shrill sound, right? So it's by the air that you put into it, but it's through that whistle that you get this result of that high-pitched, horrible squealing noise. But it's not the whistle that's making the noise, right? It's actually your breath and the whistle is just this conduit. We have to know the cause, the causal, causal part of our salvation. The thing that actually made it possible is God's grace and the vehicle that he has chosen that this gift is access is through faith in what Jesus has done. So even then we're not saved by faith. We're saved through faith, but it's ultimately God's grace, the work of Christ that allows us to know him. Um, we could have faith, and we could even know about what Jesus has done. But if that grace hadn't been extended to us, then we would just have head knowledge. But we have had that grace, that free gift, that unmerited favor that has been given to us um, because of God's love and mercy. So again, just a, an incredible passage. And we see there that we are created for good works, but we are, are reminded that our salvation is not a result of works so that no one may boast. I think it's pretty easy for us to see the line between, well, if our salvation was based on works, uh, I think we'd get to boasting pretty quick. So uh, though also knowing we wouldn't have the ability to do anything that could please a holy God on our own. And so recognizing our place, his place, his mercy, his love, the grace that he's shown us and seeing ourselves as the beneficiaries and ones who want to bring glory to him, that want to obey him out of the love that we have um, because of who he is. So moving into verse 11 and 12. So this next section, um, if you're reading the ESV, the section is called One in Christ. Uh, this section has gotten more run in my world than most passages in Scripture. So um, when I was in seminary, every person who goes through uh, the fourth Greek class, uh, they go through this passage and we do some word studies. We do this thing called validation where you take like an issue and then you explain the possible views and choose what you think the best one is. You do this like structural layout to 
help map out the argument, what's connected to what grammatically, syntactically, all that. So uh, if you've ever met someone who went to Dallas Seminary, they have more than likely run through this passage. Um, and for good reason, it's a very important one for us. But it's uh, it was fun to kind of come back to this one after it's been a couple of years since I did that project. I actually went ahead and pulled down my paper that I wrote one time. I was going on vacation with my grandparents and we were stuck in traffic. And so I told them, hey, do you want me to tell you about the paper I wrote over Ephesians 2, 11 through 22? And they were like, okay, sure. But after about an hour, um, they realized they'd made a grave mistake and they begged me to stop talking about it. But I was like, ah, oh, what else are we going to talk about? So I probably went on for another 30 minutes just to torture them a little bit. But it was all in good fun. Eventually, we got out of that traffic and... They never wanted to hear about Greek again, but uh, mission accomplished, question mark. Either way, this was fun to kind of come back to and, and see as something that I'd gotten to do as a school assignment and now get to see it as a non-school assignment. So uh, verses 11 and 12 say, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, again, we see a little bit of a bleak picture here, um, and he's specifically referring to the Gentiles. Um, so he's going to refer to him as Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision, the circumcision. It's all very technical here that um, he's referring to. Um, the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. They would call themselves the circumcision. So that's the two groups he's talking about here. Um, this little, just small clause he has that says, which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, so remember, uh, if, if you remember, the one of the covenant signs of the people was if, of Israel was circumcision. So it was a physical sign that denoted this promise that they were a part of, that they were God's people. But what Paul is going to talk about in some of his other epistles, and I think he's making kind of a, a small reference to here, is uh, the the Jews sometimes saw their justification rooted in that circumcision, that fact that they were identified as a covenant people, rather than um, they were kind of more, let me put it this way, they were putting their stock in the sign rather than the covenant itself or the person behind the covenant. They thought, okay, I am a descendant of Abraham and I am, and I am circumcised. I'm good to go. Um, whereas Paul is going to say in Romans, he's going to say not all Israel is Israel. So he's going to say the true Israel, now that Christ has been revealed, is the ones who believe in Christ that are also biologically uh, descended from Abraham and that the mere sign of circumcision is not what makes them a covenant people. So when he says, which is made in the flesh by hands, this is kind of a comment to almost as a reminder that this sign is a physical sign. It does not actually change your heart. Now it serves as a physical sign, but it should reflect a spiritual reality, whether that was when the covenant first began or now that Christ has come. Um, but many of the people of Israel, they were more invested in the sign. They put their hope in the sign and the, genetics that they have being descendants of Abraham rather than that. So that's kind of what he's discussing here. But he's also discussing how the Gentiles were not previously included in God's chosen people. Now, there were 
ways that Gentiles could become proselytes of Israel, that they could um, know the one true God, but largely the people of Israel were, were meant to be a light in the world, um, did not really execute that very well, were disobedient. Uh, and so Paul is reminding the Gentiles that you used to be like way out in left field while, you know, the people of Israel are in the dugout. You're way out in left field. Nobody is paying attention to you. Um, you were separated. You were alienated. You had this own life. You had this own life in the flesh. You didn't know about the covenant. You didn't know about the promises. You didn't have hope and you didn't have God. So again, a pretty bleak picture for the Gentiles, which I would assume includes pretty much all of us um, as people who are not of uh, Jewish descent. So pretty bleak picture, but we get another really nice solution to that here in verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So again, there's uh, this lostness, there's this uh, separation that exists, but... God, in his love, his mercy, his grace, remedies it, and it's remedied in Christ. So he tells them they have been brought near to God's covenant people by the work of Jesus, and that he is the peace that we now have, not only between us and God, but even between each other. So he's going to refer to, in verse 14, this dividing wall of hostility. So in the assignment that all the Greek four students do, we have to write a, like a two page paper about what does the, is the dividing wall and what what does it mean and all, what are the different views, which one do you think is best? So um, ultimately, there's kind of two big ones. One is there was this literal wall in the temple that separated the um, Gentile court from the um, inner temple where the Gentiles were not allowed. So that's one. Um, the one that, however, I think is more likely, especially as we go into verse 15, is um, he's, he's referring to uh, the law and the things that came with the law as this dividing wall of hostility. That was the thing that really separated Jews and Gentiles, both um, spiritually and also physically. Again, we've got this wall. The reason there's a, a literal wall in the temple is because the um, Jews thought they would be unclean if they were around the Gentiles. So they had this literal dividing wall and that was part of uh, these cleanliness laws that would allow them to go into the temple. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. And when we see in verse 15, he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, we know that Christ came not to abolish the law, but fulfill the laws, he said. But what he did get rid of is some of these commandments, these ordinances that are referred to here. So some examples of that, um, the sacrificial system, Jesus was the once for all perfect sacrifice. So no more sacrificial system necessary. Uh, circumcision itself, one does not have to be uh, circumcised in order to believe in Jesus. Dietary law, one does not have to follow rigid dietary laws in order to be a part of God's covenant people. Um, and even this cleanliness, uncleanliness, this is something that Again, what we're talking about here is God making the two one 
through what Jesus has done. So there's parts of the law that had kind of in effect had almost purposefully um, separated God's people. And there was a a part of that in which they were called to be set apart and different. And I think that's probably a, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament laws. They were called to be holy, set apart, and these were ways they were set apart. But Jesus uh, eliminated through his death and his resurrection some of these things that were keeping the Jews and the Gentiles apart. There was no need for them to be two separate covenant peoples, but he died so that we could all be one in Christ. Again, if you're looking at the ESV, that's the title of this section. And so he's going to go on, actually talk a little bit more about that in 17 through 22. He says, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So all believers are united by the same spirit and are God's household built on this firm foundation of the prophets, the apostles. Um, So that refer to the apostles being um, Paul and the disciples and their message of the gospel, which is unchanged since then. And then the prophets recognizing that um, the prophets of the Old Testament are also a part of this foundation that um, Christ didn't appear out of nowhere, but he had long been foretold in the Old Testament, um, but Jesus Christ being that final piece, that final piece that um, makes it all come together. So if you've listened to any of the Bible breakdown before today, you know one of the things that comes up the most often is the importance of reconciliation and unity within the body of Christ. It is not a, um, I wouldn't say it's like a topic I try to force into the scriptures that we talk about every week. But we see throughout these passages we've gone through in the New Testament, what a huge theme this is in the New Testament, this reconciliation, this unity between all who believe in Jesus. So sometimes that comes uh, in racial terms. So um, having reconciliation between people of different races, um, different countries, um, even people that maybe are quote unquote, just like us, uh, but that we have disputes about unity in the body of Christ is one of the absolute most important themes in the New Testament. And when we see it come up time and time again, it has to change the way that we think about one another. I think that God wants us to have unity and reconciliation with all people. I mean, even as we see Paul's told us before, as best you can live in peace with all people. And I think, I believe that's in Romans as best it depends on you to live in peace with all people, but within the body of Christ, it's not a, as best it depends on you. It's a, all right, everybody, we're coming together and we're going to make sure that we have unity. I mean, what does it say here in Ephesians two, that Christ died so that we could be brought into one body through the cross, verse 16, might reconcile us both, both Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. That is not an option. It is the option that all people who believe in Jesus have the same spirit, are a part of this same spiritual house, 
the same spiritual body as we'll see in other places that Paul will describe it. And that's our mandate. Our mandate is that we pursue reconciliation. We can, we pursue redemption with one another and you can't get around it. That is what God has called us to. That is a reason that Christ has died is to bring unity and that through that unity, even in our diversity, that we're able to show the world who God is, that he is the God of all people and that he brings all people from different tribes, nations, tongues, skill sets, countries, races, whatever it may be. He brings them all into one and they we all reflect his glory. So again, we cannot read the New Testament without talking about what does it mean for us to pursue unity and reconciliation within the body of Christ. So we're going to go quickly here into chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 6. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So um, we'll see sometimes this mystery, the mystery of Christ referred to, and this is what it is. I, don't you love it when he talks about, when some, a biblical author talks about something like a mystery of Christ, and then they give a definition like verse six, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what the mystery is. Anytime we see um, that mystery of Christ, that's what it is. And the people of God didn't know before, just like the people of Israel kind of had their distance from the Gentiles. They thought, hey, we're God's covenant people and we always have been and we always will be. Um, but the mystery of Christ is that his death came not just to reconcile uh, the people of Israel to God, but also the people of outside of Israel to God and the people of Israel and the people outside of Israel to one another. That's the mystery of Christ that was not revealed before, but has been revealed here in this time of the apostles about 2000 years ago. And we see ourselves as beneficiaries of this mystery of this grace that has been given. So that's what we're talking about here when we see mystery, that God's plan of redemption always included the Gentiles, that the Gentiles were to be a part. So as we seek to uh, apply what Ephesians 2 and a little bit of 3 are telling us, I think there's two things. First, I think that we have to recognize God's grace and being a part of his chosen people, recognizing who we were and who God is, recognizing that we were dead in our trespasses that we were pursuing our own thing, that we were following the ruler of this world, but that God, while we were that way, not once we got ourselves cleaned up enough, we got enough of the dirt off so he could rub off the last little spots of dirt on us. No, while we were still dead in our trespasses, still filthy in sin, that he made us alive through Christ. We have to recognize God's grace. We should be grateful for it and we should live out of an abundance of it, not in a way that we try to earn or prove that we are good enough for what God has done for us. That's again, it can look the same, but it's very different what's going on in our hearts. And it tells a different story about what we think about ourselves and what we think about God. So living out, in a, out of a gratitude and abundance of God's grace is what we're called to. And second, pursuing unity 
I would say pursue unity at all costs with believers, pursuing unity at all costs with those who believe in Jesus. Again, I think we should pursue unity outside the church as well, um, that we should seek to be people that are unified in general and that we shouldn't draw arbitrary lines between ourselves and other people. But when we're in the church, it's not a should we, it's a we must. Um, We must pursue unity because that is the mandate of scripture. That means serving one another, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. I think that can be one of the toughest, finding forgiveness for those that have hurt us in the body of Christ. I know that one's tough for me. I'm sure that you can think of examples in your own life, finding forgiveness within the body of Christ, resolving conflict in the body of Christ. That's a real practical one. It's not this real high level thinking. Sometimes we just need to have some good old fashioned, hey, we got to sit down. We need to hash this out. And the the goal of that, the goal of all these things being unity and the goal of that unity, unity being to glorify God, to obey him, um, to show people that there's a different way, that um, making sure I get mine, I have my way, I get the most, you get less, I get more, that that's not the way that we're called to live, that we're called to live in unity, to look out for one another, to love one another as Christ has loved us and as we love ourselves. So that's what I, that's all I've got for today. That's what I think that this passage um, kind of lends itself to our application. I hope that um, if, if you've got some time, taking some time to read through the book of Ephesians, just seeing the beautiful um, picture of who God is, what he thinks of us and what he's done for us um, can be a huge encouragement. So I hope it is to you. And I hope that we can pursue this unity in the recognition of God's grace and what he's already done for us.